So our reading this evening is from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to, I should say, 30 on the sheet. Um, And that's on page 1036 in the Church Bibles. So Luke 4, starting at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marvelled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all of the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down at the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Thank you, Natalie. Well, do have that uh, open in front of you, please. Page 1036 uh, as we look at it together. And before we do, just let me pray. Loving Father, this is your word. We come to it in humility, but we come to it with expectation, believing that you are going to speak to us from it. Lord, give us humble hearts, we pray, and receptive spirits and obedient wills to do what you would have us do. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know whether you've ever been down in, uh, in the precinct in Tunbridge Wells and been approached by somebody with a clipboard. And the usual sort of thing is, if you've got a couple of minutes to spare, sir, uh, would you mind just answering a few questions? And you tend to sort of dodge them or try not to make eye contact too much because you know that their idea of two minutes is usually more like at least 10. And it's probably not something you're that much interested in anyway. But suppose I sent you out this evening with a clipboard and one question to ask, just one. And the question is this, if there was a God, and these days the if probably does have to be there, if there was a God, what would you most 
want him to do? If you like, you can have five seconds to mumble about that to yourselves. If there was a God, well, we believe there is here at St. John's. Let me make that quite clear. What would you most want him to do? I think you'd get fairly ready answers from most people. They'd be very different, probably. I think there would be those who would think of Ukraine and say that they would like God to stop wars, please. Uh, Perhaps they would think of the hungry and ask God to feed people, please. You might get someone thinking nearer at home and say, well, perhaps he could pay my energy bill for me. Uh, Maybe with uh, sadness of heart, we might ask that he would protect children. I think I would put that quite high on my list, certainly. Please pray for the children, incidentally. This is not in my notes. But pray for the children who tomorrow evening will be taken from house to house to knock on the doors of total strangers and ask for sweets. 364 days a year, that is exactly what we tell them never to do, isn't it? And then one day a year we take them out and help them do it. I don't understand it. Forgive me, that is an aside. But maybe protecting children who are so vulnerable would be high on your list. Maybe you would like God to come and solve the climate change problem. Or maybe at a more personal level, end cancer. I guess we all have our own manifesto, don't we? If God could do it, this is what I would like him to do. These verses in Luke 4 are the story of when God did come. And they are the account of what he did say he had come to do. So the question is, what was it? And how would he do it? And basically, I think Luke shows us two things in these verses as we answer this big question. And the first is this. He shows us, surely, the person Jesus is. Verses 14 and 15, of course, set the scene. And it's Jesus returning to Nazareth. As far as we know, he's never preached there before, certainly not in his public ministry. He was, however, 30, and he did grow up there, and it is possible that he'd been invited, perhaps, to choose a reading and say a few words in the synagogue before this time. We don't know. But certainly in terms of his adult public ministry, this is the first time. And he has uh, become, of course, the local boy who's made good and come home. And Luke wants us very much to know, too, that it's not by chance that he's come back, and it's not out of homesickness or sentimentality. He has returned, he says, in the power of the Spirit. Not just, I would suggest, Spirit-empowered, but Spirit-led. This is a strand that runs through these early chapters and verses of Luke's Gospel. The very first words of the gospel have Luke telling us that it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. He wants us, of course, to have an orderly and carefully planned account that we can trust. But I think under that, he also wants us to know that God has an orderly plan and that it is his intentions that are unfolding in this story. Nothing in these verses happens by chance. The Spirit of God is at work from first to last. And from the beginning, Luke has been at pains to show us that when the angel announces to Mary in chapter 1 of Luke that God is giving her a very special baby. It is by the Spirit that her baby has been conceived. He says, or he writes, the Holy Spirit will come upon you 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. At eight days old in the temple for his circumcision, he's met by Simeon, who recognizes who this little baby actually is. And what does Luke write? The Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And age 30 and ready to begin his public ministry, it is Luke in chapter 3 who tells us when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice from heaven came, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is a person Luke is showing us in whom the Spirit is at work to lead and to empower. But I think it's also clear from verses 14 and 15 that this is not the absolute beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says there, a report about him had gone out through all the surrounding country. Clearly many people have heard him before in other places. He has a reputation already. We are told he has taught in their synagogues and very encouragingly, he has been glorified by all. This isn't just a village being nice to a returning young man. It's a village welcoming home its newfound, and dare I say the word, celebrity teacher. I'm not sure that's how Luke would have written it, but I think it might have been how they perceived it. Luke doesn't use the word rabbi, but it's possibly how they were beginning to think of him. It's actually John, of course, who tells us what Jesus has been doing. And uh, he tells us that he's already turned water into wine at Cana. And then he's visited Samaria, where he's met a Gentile woman. That's going to be significant in this story. At a well, and changed not only her life, but the life of her whole village. So by the time Luke picks up the story in chapter 4 here, Jesus has already arrived in Galilee, which remember is not just a lake, it's a whole district up there in the north, and has been preaching in its synagogues. And now finally, back home in his hometown of Nazareth, it's the Sabbath. And he's gone along to the synagogue, as he always does. And whereas verse 16 tells us, he grew up as a boy. Everybody in that building knows him. And all of the elderly and venerable gentlemen would be saying, I remember him when he was this high. And they would. There were a lot of memories there. But now, of course, he's the honoured guest. And as often happened in a synagogue, the honoured guest is invited to choose the reading from the prophets. Uh, We won't be technical, but just to understand that there were traditionally two readings, one from the law, one from the prophets. The reading from the law was always prescribed. That wasn't a matter of choice. The synagogue would work through the whole of the books of the law every year on an annual cycle basis. But a visiting speaker was allowed to choose the second reading, the one from the prophets, and then to say a few words about it, which incidentally he would do sitting down, which is why it said after he'd read, he sat down. And Jesus chooses the Isaiah scroll and unrolls it to chapter 61. But this isn't just a visiting speaker picking, dare I say it, his favorite verse. It's the same divine purpose that's brought him here that is still at work. He knows exactly why these are the verses that have to be read. And so verse 16 tells us, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place 
And we notice straight away that the very first words that Isaiah begins with, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. But the Spirit who'd inspired Isaiah to write these words knew what the prophet himself, of course, could never have known, that they were being written into the Scriptures all those centuries before, precisely so that 700 years later, Jesus would be able to pick up that scroll and read it. And notice that Isaiah's words are not just about the Messiah. They are put into the mouth of the Messiah. They are written in the first person. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, Isaiah wrote. So he may be writing, but the Messiah himself is speaking. Anointed, of course, is what the word Messiah literally means, anointed one. And everybody in that synagogue would have known that perfectly well. He has anointed me, as Jesus read it, was a messianic claim. Do you see, he is asking, the person that I am? But there was more than just a messianic promise, wasn't there, in these verses? These promises and the year of the Lord's favour were a reference to a very particular year in Jewish events, the year of Jubilee. Now, we've had a few Jubilees in recent years, not so long now since we had the, uh, the Queen's uh, the Platinum Jubilee. Is that right? On blank all of a sudden, yes, so many Jubilees. But uh, we associate the word Jubilee, of course, with royal anniversaries. But they didn't. To them, Jubilee was nothing to do with royalty. It was about freedom, and it was about restoration. And suddenly you realize the relevance with the words that Jesus has chosen to read. Those two words lie right at the very heart of what he's read. Uh, read. The law of Moses had decreed that every 50th year was to be jubilee. There were to be seven lots of seven, and then the following year, the 50th, was always jubilee. And in that year, debts were cancelled. If there were Jews who were enslaved, they had to be set free. Property had to be returned to its rightful owner. And even the land had a holiday. It must be left fallow in order to rest. And again, there is another layer of meaning suddenly to good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, all summed up in this year of the Lord's favour. In fact, this was to be the greatest favour that the Lord would ever bestow. The arrival, at long last, of Israel's Messiah, Saviour, King. Three chapters before, when Luke was writing about Mary, who also knew about the Lord's favour, it's another word there, he recorded Mary's song of praise and celebration. And she too, 30 years before her son did it, had drawn on Isaiah. She said, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. Whether she was consciously quoting Isaiah 42 or 61 or a mixture of both, I don't know, but you can see where she's you can see where she's coming from, where the words are coming from. She understands too 
So it's not surprising that as Jesus finished reading and sat down to preach, verse 20 says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Well, they would be, wouldn't they? Their ears were wide open, their eyes were out on stalks, and they were dying to hear what he was going to say next from this messianic verse. And of course, that messianic arrival was the thing they were desperate to hear. For centuries, Israel had looked for, longed for its coming king. And Jesus' opening comment must have seemed like a dream come true for them. Uh, Today, he said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So far, so wonderful. And Jesus' message that immediately followed, even though, incidentally, we don't have it, pleased them too, we are told in verse 22. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Ah, now if Jesus had just stopped there, this story would have had a very different ending, wouldn't it? It's possible they would have lifted him up and carried him head high from the synagogue in adulation. Do you remember the crowd in John 6 when he'd fed the 5,000? And it said they all wanted to make him king at that moment. But Jesus didn't stop there because he couldn't stop there. He could read their hearts and they were thinking, I would suggest, more than they were saying. There was that observation, wasn't there? Isn't this Joseph's son? Well, it could, of course, have been a statement of pride and joy. Isn't it wonderful that Joseph's son is able to do all this? Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe Jesus read in those words just a hint of doubt and criticism and cynicism. How can this man possibly claim to be the Messiah? He's just Joseph's son. And we've known him since he was a little boy. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus responded. And when he did, the mood mood began to change, didn't it? Verse 23, and he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. There's a nice little touch there as we remember this is a gospel written by Luke. What was Luke? Luke, of course, was the beloved physician. No wonder he connected to this particular remark. I wonder perhaps if at some point some disgruntled patient had ever looked at him rather miffed and said, Luke, uh, why doesn't the physician heal himself? I don't know. We mustn't read too much in. But here is a physician writing and talking about what Jesus is saying is in their hearts. So in verse 24, Jesus matches them proverb for proverb. No prophet, he says, is acceptable in his own town. And by now it's beginning to dawn on them, isn't it? That while they had a great messianic expectation, Jesus perhaps wasn't quite the Messiah they'd expected. They believed in a restored Israel with restored independence. But as Jesus went on, it became clear he was bringing a very different kind of restoration. And it wasn't quite the one they had in mind. When in verse 22, they'd marveled at his gracious words, it says, they'd actually missed the point. These weren't just words graciously spoken. 
These were words that spoke of grace, which is far more profound. They announced grace. And, says Jesus, this grace is not just for Israel. And so Luke moves us on from seeing the person Jesus is to the real reason Jesus came. And we might expect Luke to use the rest of this chapter to give us Jesus' actual sermon. I mean, there are plenty of verses available for it if he wanted to, but he doesn't. Why not? Well, I think the answer is because actually it's going to occupy all the rest of his gospel. From chapter 5 onwards, Luke shows us Jesus literally doing the things that he's announced. There he is, restoring sight to the blind. There he is, healing the sick. And in the same chapter, liberating the demon-possessed. But Luke knows what the audience in Nazareth does not yet know. That ultimately, Jesus' message is not political. And it's more than literal. It's not about what we today might call liberation theology. Jesus' manifesto wasn't promoting economic prosperity, supporting political independence, and leveling up the poor. There had been one man, as we've already seen, who understood already what that manifesto was. We've already mentioned him. And his name was Simeon. And you remember holding that newborn baby Jesus, he'd said this, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The sight that Jesus will bring is to eyes that are spiritually blind because of sin, to enable the world to see him and with faith and be saved and delivered from the slavery of their sin. The liberty he's coming to bring is not from the Romans. It's from the destroying power of sin and death. And in Luke 4, Jesus has already started his journey towards the cross. And Luke knows that. And that is where his mission will be completed and accomplished. The Nazareth Manifesto points straight to a Jerusalem cross. Luke is in fact starting to lead us towards Jesus' definition of his purpose that comes later in this gospel in chapter 19. And you know the words, I'm sure, as well as I do. It's one of the well-known verses of Luke. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So if Luke, in these chapter 4 verses, is not sharing the explanation from Jesus... What is he showing us? Well, he takes these 10 verses to show us their reaction to Jesus. The real deal breaker in Jesus' words is what comes next. And he, as he goes on to explain not what the good news is, but who the good news is for. They were already concerned that Jesus, this carpenter's son from Nazareth, might perhaps by now be the wrong candidate. But far worse, he was intending to offer God's good news to the wrong people, the Gentiles. And at that point, simmering anxiety turns into raging hostility. And in verses 25 to 27, 
Jesus makes his purpose crystal clear with two well-chosen Old Testament examples. He reminds them how in a time of famine, Elijah left Israel and went to feed a Gentile widow in Sidon. And how Elisha, despite all the lepers in Israel, went to heal a Gentile Syrian called Naaman. And at that point, the whole thing exploded. And verse 28 says, And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. In a few moments, they went from verse 22's all spoke well of him to verse 28's all were filled with wrath. It only took six verses to get from one to the other. And I wonder perhaps in that if we see just a little premonition of what was going to happen three years later down south in Jerusalem with another mob that went from singing Hosanna at the beginning of a week to yelling crucify him just a few days later. The Nazareth congregation had suddenly become a lynch mob and they surge out to hurl him to his death over a cliff. And I suppose Jesus' ministry might have ended at that point. That might have been the end of it, perhaps. And I'm quite sure that was their intention. They meant it to be the end of it. That's what they had in mind. Stop him now, before all this Gentile gospel thing gets beyond control. But just as it was the power of the Spirit that had led him to this place, it now seems the power of the Spirit would lead him safely from it. All that verse 30 tells us is this, but passing through them, he went away. Wouldn't you love to have been there? A little fly on the wall. Just see how that worked. Were they unable to physically manhandle him? Uh, did their arms just fall to the side? Or did, was it one of those cowardly moments when you do it? No, you do it. No, you go first. No, you throw him over. No, I'm not going to throw You know? I mean, we don't know. We don't know. It doesn't matter, does it? But the point was that this was not to be the moment of his death. How could it be? The man who had come to die was not going to die by being thrown over a cliff in Nazareth. He'd come for a very different death and a far more important one. It would happen not up here in Galilee, but down in Jerusalem. And everything that Jesus had just read from Isaiah 61 would be accomplished there. That is where the liberty for the captives would be, uh, would be brought. That is where sight would be offered to the blind. That is where the captives would be freed. Everything would depend on that death. And so Luke's account ends with some of the saddest words possible. Very simple words. He went on his way. Could there be a more tragic epitaph than that? These people, that day, in that synagogue, had heard the greatest announcement in the entire history of mankind. It ranks up there with the Christmas morning proclamation by the angels in the sky, doesn't it? Unto you is born this day. 
And here it was, they'd heard every word of it, and they'd heard it from the man himself. This day he'd said, this is fulfilled in your ears. Here I am, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news. But they didn't want it. At least they didn't want it like that. They wanted it on their own terms. They wanted a different kind of good news. And it wasn't the one that Jesus had come to bring. And as far as we know, Jesus never went back. John 1 says it exactly, doesn't it? He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. One final thought. When Jesus stopped reading in that synagogue and he put down the scroll of Isaiah, you will probably know, and they would certainly have known, that he stopped right in the middle of a verse. He didn't go to the full stop. He stopped at the comma and put the scroll down. Isaiah's verse actually says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So why did Jesus stop? Because what he'd come to do, his Nazareth manifesto, his good news, was in the first half of the sentence. The year of the Lord's favor the day of God's grace. It's the year, if you like, that we live in. It's been every year since Jesus died to the year when he returns. We live in that time window, which is the day of God's grace, the year of his favor. Uh, sometimes the New Testament describes it as the last days. Um, in the culture that I grew up in, the church there would sometimes be venerable elderly gentlemen who had beards rather longer than mine. And they would sometimes come up to me at the end of a service and say, Roger, do you think we're living in the last days? As if that was an incredibly difficult and profound question. Well, it's not difficult at all. The answer is yes, of course we are. And we've been living in them since the day that Jesus went. And we shall be living them until the day he returns. This is the day of the Lord's favor. This is the day when we have the opportunity to see who Jesus is and receive that good news from him. You see, Jesus knew what Isaiah perhaps could not know, that the Messiah would come not once, but twice. And it would be the future, the second coming, when he would bring the day of vengeance of our God. There is a day when he will come, and he will come as our judge and we shall stand before him, and then it will make all the difference in the world and for eternity what we have done with the Lord Jesus Christ. We ignore it at our peril. He went on his way. It's not just a comment on the past. It's a glimpse of the future for those who reject the Savior. Do you remember that questionnaire question we started with? If there was a God, we asked, what would you most want him to do? Well, Jesus at Nazareth definitively answered that question. Not just what he would do, but what he has done. A death on the cross, a resurrection afterwards to bring the greatest deliverance and restoration and liberty of all. And to receive that liberty, we have to do what they didn't do. We have to see who he is. And we have to put our trust in him. 
and receive the freedom and new life that he alone can give. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these amazing words from Isaiah and from our Lord himself. Father, help us this evening to have a fresh glimpse of who Jesus is and to make that response of faith to him, to receive all that Jesus brings. Lord, that is our prayer. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.